So Money Episode 687, Tanya Hester, Early Retiree. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. I'm about to celebrate my 38th birthday this month, and my guest is the same age. The big difference, she's retired. Tanya Hester has been retired now for just a couple of months, so we're getting her fresh off the nine-to-five boat. She and her husband both worked as political consultants, making six figures each for many years. They loved their work. They found it fulfilling. However, uh, Tanya watched her father lose his mobility early in his life because of a degenerative neuromuscular disability, and she realized she could have the same fate, and so she wanted to make Make efforts to retire early and be able to spend her able-bodied years hiking, traveling, enjoying all the world had to offer and away from the office. After years of saving what she says is half of her income, she and her husband finally reached financial independence. At the end of last year, 2017, they left their careers and are currently enjoying outdoor life where they live in Lake Tahoe. Along the way, Tanya started a blog called Our Next Life to document the couple's journey, and it now gets over 150,000 page views every month and even earned her the 2017 Plutus Award for being one of the best blogs of the year. We'll talk about her journey, her blog, and how someone who is not a natural saver, as Tanya admits, how she was able to retire before the age of 40 and, as she hopes, never to work again in her life. Here's Tanya. Tanya Hester, welcome to So Money, and also congratulations on early retirement. Now just two months into it. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you on both. I'm so excited to be here, and I'm also excited to be retired. <laughs> Let's talk about that. I mean, what? how do you define your retirement? How are you living your retirement? And then we'll talk about how you got here. By the way, you're only 38 years old. What is, is it everything you thought it would be? It, it's funny. I don't think that I would have expected to actually feel retired this early into it. I think that I fully expected it to be a longer process, but we kind of through a weird mix of circumstances ended up doing a quick trip to Taiwan uh, in mid-January in our first month of early retirement. And in a strange sort of way, that was actually the best thing we could have done because it really got us out of a work mode. We were on the other side of the planet. We weren't awake at the times when people we knew were online anyway. So reaching for our phones or trying to stay up on email was a pointless endeavor uh, just by virtue of time zone. But then we were also out on adventures, going through national parks in Taiwan, which by the way, Taiwan is amazing and beautiful and also really cheap. And I can't believe more Westerners don't go there. Um, But I remember this exact moment when we were in Taroko Gorge National Park next to this crazy, beautiful marble gorge, racing down the road on mountain bikes, trying to dodge like big tour buses full of Chinese tourists. And that was kind of this incredible moment where both Mark and I stopped at one point. We're like, oh my gosh, we feel retired. It's a Monday. Our colleagues are at work. We have no desire to check email or, you know, ask what's up with them. And it really felt like a big switch. But um, as for the rest of it, I think what it's going to look like, that's all still 
a little bit TBD. You know, I, I write a blog. I'm going to keep doing that. I'm going to keep doing the podcasts that I do. Um, Mark and I are hoping to spend a lot more time skiing. We just got some great snow. So he's out doing that right now. And then I think we're really just excited to keep things kind of open-ended and to see what life looks like and to see what we feel drawn to now that we all of a sudden have so many fewer constraints on our time. So um, it'll be an evolution, I'm sure. Financially, how much did you to accumulate before you felt it was an okay time, a safe time to quit your jobs? We, I, th- I think we don't share our overall numbers. And I think they're, I think, of limited utility to folks anyway. But what I can talk about is multipliers of our annual expenses. So if you know how much it costs you to live for a year, then um, some of this will make more sense. And if if you don't, then I'd really encourage you to start tracking because I think that's really the first key to being able to save to retire early. Um, but we did a two-phase approach. So we had gotten a pretty good head start on our 401k tax-advantaged retirement savings. And that's mostly due to Mark being a super saver from an early age, which is not a virtue that I share. Um, But we had a good amount in 401ks already. So we decided to do two phases where we'd save a set amount in our taxable investment accounts. So just some basic Vanguard index funds. And those would support us until we get to the age of 59 and a half when we can then tap into the 401ks. And so we saved about uh, 16 and a half times our annual expenses in phase one. And our phase one period is about 19 years, a little bit less than that. So 16 times our expenses to get through 19 years. And then we'll also have some rental income kicking in when we get to about about 12 years down the road from now. Um, so that'll help supplement things. And then we've got many more times. So we've got about um, a little over 25 times our annual expenses currently in our 401k, but that we expect to grow. So we're hoping that when we reach 59 and a half, we'll be able to up our standard of living a bit. I mean, we don't feel like we're living a life of sacrifice now by any means, but we should have the ability to do a few more things, travel a little more comfortably. And also we hope give a lot more charitably by the time we get to our 60s and kind of live what we'll then call our traditional retirement. Let's also explore the uh, the aspects of your lives, where you live, what you do, how you save, as all those things contributed to your ability to save so much money and to retire early. I often, when I was just having coffee with my friend um, Libby, who is an editor at Business Insider, and you know they cover a lot of um, stories about people who retire early and millionaires, and lo and behold. <laughs> We do, the common ground is none of those people live in New York. <laughs> none of those people, um, you know, probably even lived on the East Coast for that matter. Many of these people, like you, got a head start in, in investing because they had the good paying jobs to do so. Um, so talk a little bit about the circumstances of your lives that allowed you to reach this massive goal. Yeah. And I will say, actually, though it's true we weren't living in New York, we were definitely not living in cheap places for any stage of this. So when Mark was saving, uh, well, it was in D.C., which certainly not as expensive as New York by any means, but still an expensive place to live. A big chunk of our savings we did when we were living in Los Angeles and living in West L.A., so not way out in the suburbs or anything. I mean, we had a pretty expensive lifestyle there, too. And then the last six years and the bulk of our really focused retirement savings has been living in Tahoe, which, when it's included in rankings, comes out as the fourth most expensive place in the country. So. I do believe very strongly that you can do a lot of this stuff living in an expensive place. 
it's just a matter of what choices you make. So for us, moving from LA to Tahoe was not technically a, a change in terms of cost of living. In fact, many things got much more expensive. Gas here is among the most expensive gas in the country. Groceries are a fortune. We pay what we call the mountain tax on essentially everything. But a big difference is really cultural. So in LA, if we wanted to get together with friends, we were basically looking at $100 a person for dinner to go out somewhere. And that was just sort of like the standard that everybody we knew followed. And nobody ever said that, but that was just understood. Here in Tahoe, even though things are equally as expensive, people are much more likely to say something like, hey, let's go for a hike or let's go for a bike ride together or let's you know, come over and we'll have game night and we'll bring chips and salsa. Like the stuff that people want to do together is much, much cheaper. And so those are the types of things that I think have really made a big difference for us. But looking back, if we had stayed in LA, I think when we had this aha moment and realized that early retirement was possible, I think we just would have had to change some of our choices and change really our money mindset and try to bring some of our friends along to say like, okay, let's not go out to that trendy restaurant. Let's like come over and we'll make pizza or, you know, do something that's still equally fun, but a lot less costly because that I think is, is the big significant factor more than living in a cheap place. We, we didn't live in a cheap place at any stage of our savings and still made it happen. I, I will say though, like we don't have kids. Uh, we do have above average incomes. So we certainly were helped by factors there, but I think people in the bigger, more expensive cities are also more likely to have higher income. So I think that tends to net out as a positive, not a negative. It can. But to your point, I think that there is a lot of money that gets blown away from the choices you make in socializing, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, but thank you for also mentioning that you don't have children and that you are making above average salaries because I don't think those were irrelevant factors. Mm -hmm. um, as a parent, I know that um, majority of our money goes to childcare and educating them and clothing them and feeding them. <laughs> um, and it, you know, fortunately, though, we live in a, an area that, um, there are higher living wages here. So it, it does shake out, but it is still, I think, uh, is more challenging for people living in high cost of living areas than say a rural part of America where they're, where they might be working from home and being able to make more than they would if they were working, say, at a company. Um, you tell us a little bit about what you were doing in your previous life, your careers. You were both in engineering or why do no, I think no, it? No, 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 no. I don't know why I thought that. I think I'm, I'm having a, a flashback to another couple. Uh, no, it's it's funny because so many people, I think, who are vocal in the early retirement community are related to... Yeah, I mean, everyone was like a software engineer. Yeah, or worked in tech. I guess that's where I'm, uh, where I'm, my mind's going. Yeah, no, Mark and I actually both worked in political consultant consulting. So, um, you know, consulting does tend to pay a little bit more, but it also is one of those career fields where you're expected to be reachable at essentially all hours. And once we got to a certain level in our career, we were no longer even really able to be offline during vacation. And every vacation we took over the last five, six years, we worked, you know, maybe not half of it, but like a good chunk of it. And, and I yeah. So it's, you're paid well, but you're also trading a lot for that. And that was for us a big part of the motivation to retire early was just recognizing like we were going at such a frantic pace with work that, and, and I will say we loved 
a lot of our work. We loved our clients. We felt really fortunate to get to do work that was meaningful to us, but it was just a pace that we felt like we couldn't sustain without it taking a serious toll on our health. And that was a trade-off we weren't willing to make long-term. We were willing to make it short-term to save, um, but over the long-term, we really wanted something different for our lives. And speaking of health, I I know that what was the catalyst for wanting to retire early and wanting to achieve financial freedom earlier than later was watching your father lose his mobility early in his life due to a degenerative neuromuscular disability. Can you talk a little bit more about that uh, and how that impacted, affected you and your goals? Yeah, it it has been a huge motivator for me. So my dad stopped working when I was in middle school and we're lucky in that his disability isn't one that's ever going to shorten his life, but it has certainly impacted the types of things and how how many activities he can do and it limited his ability to work. So he was home most of the time uh, from middle school and high school on. And seeing that you know, knowing that that gene could also be in me. And as it turns out, it is. Although it seems like at this point, it's, I'm probably old enough that I'm, it's clear I'm not going to get his manifestation of it, which is really great. Um, but we didn't know that until recently. And so I've, I've spent my whole life knowing like, okay, by the time I reach my mid thirties or about 40, uh, my lifestyle might have to really change. And I might not be able to do a lot of the things that I love, especially the outdoors kind of stuff. His balance is really affected. So he can't do things like go hike on narrow mountain ridges like we like to do and, and things like that. And so it, Seeing that, knowing that I had this timer or this potential timer has always been a big force in just recognizing like I can't spend my whole life at the office. And the interesting thing is like, I think we all in some way have a timer. We just don't know what it is. But I think that in my case, it's really been a blessing of helping me hurry up and and get to a place where we could have control over our own time instead of assuming that all the things that we love and want to do are things we'll have time to do when we're at traditional retirement age. I've never felt like I could put stuff off until then. If we can go back even further into your childhood, now that we're talking about family and the influences that our parents uh, place on us, I always ask guests about their biggest financial influences growing up as children, a moment, an experience, a job that they had, or something that they witnessed, a conversation that was a moment, right? It was like a moment in their minds that now even as adults, they reflect on it impacts the way that they think about money, their relationship with money. What's a story like that that you can share? Oh my gosh. Um, so many, but I think the one that really stands out to me was this moment. My, my parents divorced when I was in middle school, but I, I definitely saw the way that they had very different money philosophies. I think my dad would prefer to save money. My mom preferred to spend it. And there was one moment where he said something along the lines of, well, you know, if she ever gets money, she just spends it right away. That it felt like really judgmental and harsh, but also, you know, who, who knows? It was probably true. I was too young to really process that stuff. But I do think it set up a narrative for me in some ways that, you know, women are spenders or women are bad with money that I do think I carried for a long time. And coupled with the fact that I I am not a naturally disciplined person. I am a person who needs systems of accountability to help me do things. You know, I would set money saving goals for myself in my early 20s, early in my career, and I would fail. I wouldn't be able to do it. I would 
say, okay, I'm going to save 50 bucks out of this paycheck. And like by the time the next paycheck came, all the money was spent. I didn't save any of it. And so I really believed that. I believed like I'm bad with money. I'm never going to be good at it. And it was really making the connection for myself that it was not my failure. It was a failure to have the right systems. And that was what led me to figure out that I needed to pay myself first. I needed to automate everything. So it wasn't always a choice. And to be perfectly honest, that has been the entire secret of the success that Mark and I have had saving for early retirement has just been hiding money from ourselves and making money come out of our paychecks invisibly. So we never feel like we have it. So in some ways, I'm really grateful for that, that narrative and having had it as a kid. Although I do think it's unfortunately very widespread that women tend to think of themselves as bad with money and men don't have that same kind of baggage. So as a whole on in society, I'd love for us to get rid of that idea, but in a weird roundabout sort of way, it kind of helped me. So it sounds like the aspects of of your millionaire status, of your retirement status, it, you know, I'm hearing things like discover your why, like why do I really want to do this? Um, mm-hmm. Because that's going to ultimately drive you and keep you motivated. And in your case, it was not wanting to necessarily have the uh, the, the the challenges that your father did in his life and be able to retire early and enjoy life sooner. Another one is automating the money, the savings, because if, if it gets into your bank account and then you have to do something with it, you probably won't do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Having a partner too that's on the same page, let's talk about that. Your partnership with your husband, uh, it, it's often, it's rare actually that we hear couples talk about how financially synced they are. So um, before you got married, did you know you were, you would hit the jackpot in that, in that regard? <laughs> no. And, and I think it's funny because Though Mark and I have been really in lockstep on our big why, our goal of retiring early, we are not perfectly in sync on on money. And I think even to this day, we still are are constantly working through some of this stuff. In and it tends to be in a small degree of differences. So we both agree generally what we want to do with things, but sometimes I might hit a patch where I go like, okay, I want to be really frugal and buckle down and not spend. And he'll say like, yeah, but I kind of need like this new thing right now. Or then other times where I'll be spending a little bit more and he'll want to buckle down. And we tend to have those moments at different times. (laughs) But the thing that I think has been the great unifier for us on all this and has helped us get to these big goals has been the why, you know, to your point that I don't think you can just have money goals in isolation or in a vacuum and expect that to be something that both parties want to stick to. There has to be a bigger vision or a bigger life connection behind them. And once we realized that early retirement was possible and was something that we could achieve in, in a relatively short time, we, we really only saved for about six years in a focused way. That was not starting from nothing, but it was, it was starting from not a ton of liquid assets. So that was only possible because we both knew what the big vision was, which was to be able to spend more time um, outdoors, to not be constantly at the beck and call of clients or work and reachable on every vacation and to not ever feel like we were getting enough sleep, all of that stuff. Like we had that vision together. And so then that always gave us a frame to be able to talk about the, the kind of money details that go on underneath that. All right, let's now do our So Money Chase Slate question of the day. Chase Slate is our sponsor. Tanya, what is your number one financial habit now that you have retired, you know, 40 some days into it, 50 some days into it? Uh, what's a practice that you are consciously still following? 
Um, hiding money from ourselves all the way. I think <laughs> it, it is the thing. I love your that, honesty. <laughs> it is the thing that let us save. Um, you know, I know that you've had folks on before who are naturally frugal, naturally super savers. We are none of those things. We love spending money. We love traveling. We love going out to eat. There are plenty of things we would happily spend on. So hiding it worked for saving. And now what we're doing is giving ourselves a regular paycheck through just kind of some simple account transfers. So it feels like we still have regular money coming in, but it's not a lot. It's not a ton of our, our whole annual budget and it is keeping us more accountable. So if, if that works for you, if you can look at what's in your checking account and know, okay, this is all I have to spend, then I think our system can work really well. And, and in our case, so far, so good. Any advice you have for people out there who want to achieve financial freedom, perhaps they're not as aggressively, um, not as aggressive as you two retiring before 40, but, you know, they just want to get ahead. They want to be able to pay their bills, save, invest, enjoy life. And they're stuck because they either uh, are living beyond their means. They have some lingering debt from student loans or credit cards. You know, that's most people. Most people live paycheck to paycheck. Most people can't even come up with $400 in an emergency cash. Mm -hmm. What's your advice? And now that you've stepped into the financial literacy world, your blog has been um, awarded. It's it's highly trafficked. People come to you too for inspiration and also hopefully some guidance. So what is your guidance for those of us who want to just get better with our money? I think two things. I think if you're starting from scratch, the very first thing that you should be doing, and this is eye-opening for everyone, is just to start tracking all of your spending so you know where your money is going. To your point about most people living paycheck to paycheck, and that was totally us at one point in our lives, most people just don't know where all the money goes. Like it might be, you know, people talk about the latte factor. I, I am not one who's going to tell people to cut out the latte if that is the very best part of your day. Um, but it might be that you're spending a whole lot more money at Starbucks than you realize, or it might be, you know, whatever else, like just getting to know your own spending habits, I think is often very illuminating on its own. And when you look at that stuff, then it's much easier to say, okay, is this really bringing me happiness? Is this really making my life better? And it becomes incredibly easy actually to cut some of that stuff out. Not everything. That's not the whole deal, but that is a great place to start. I think then beyond that, I totally lost my train of thought. I'm going to get back to it. <laughs> That's okay. Um, um, another question I had was now that you've reached, you know, quote unquote, financial freedom, do you still feel the need to budget? And do you still revisit your spending to make sure that you're not just spending the way that you thought you should be? I mean, because what I do is every year at least reevaluate the spending because what I may have signed up for in the previous year, whether it was a subscription or a program, mm -hmm. I mean, life, my life changes, my needs change. I might still be paying for this thing and I shouldn't be. So those are also ways to cut back. But how often do you look at your numbers? Yeah, we, we look at our numbers pretty much every month and know where our money's going. We also, I'll be honest, like we don't do a strict line item budget at all and really just focus on containing our spending within a certain amount. And as long as we stay within that amount, we don't sweat it too much. But we do take a look at the recurring charges on our credit cards to make sure that there isn't something there that we're not using. And I think the other thing I was going to say before is... If you get to a point where you know where your money is going and you 
feel like you could probably spend a bit less. A really good strategy to do is how I started with all of this, which is just to start with a very low level of hiding money from yourself. So all of my saving journey started years ago when I had my HR department at work split my paycheck so that I had $50 out of every paycheck go straight into savings and the rest went into checking. So I felt like I had most of my paycheck, but then $50 went away. And I probably felt that the first paycheck, but then after that, I didn't notice and I just adjusted to it. And then a few months later, I said like, I could probably do better. And I upped it to $100 a paycheck. And then I kept upping it and that could be through HR. If HR doesn't want to change your paperwork that often, you can do it through other ways. A lot of banks will let you do automatic savings withdrawals, or you can set it up as automatic investing. Uh, most investment banks may have a, a pretty big minimum limit to open a mutual fund, but they'll make it lower if you do it as a recurring thing. So it could be 50 bucks a paycheck. And I think doing that until you really notice it or feel the pain, if you up it gradually, it can be incredibly powerful. And I think that's honestly my biggest tip to folks is like, don't try to cut everything all at once, cut a little bit at a time and then keep finding little ways to refine so that it doesn't feel like a sacrifice and you don't feel like you're having a, you know, going from a life that's comfortable to a life that's miserable. If, if you're saving or even paying off debt, but you feel miserable in the meantime, you're not going to stick with it. It's the same as dieting. If you feel deprived all the time, you're not going to be able to stick with that diet. So finding a way to do it gradually and in little ways, so it never feels painful, um, I think is just a really good way to start and a good way to get ahead. Right. I agree. Rather than cutting things out, sometimes it's just a matter of finding really uh, more affordable substitutes, asking your existing uh, billers to adjust the bill, to give you a discount, to reduce mm -hmm. the interest rate. You know, there's a lot of ways to renegotiate how, what you're paying without losing that service, without losing access to that product. So your life doesn't change, but your bank account sure does. For sure. And some of that stuff you may decide you don't need. And so you can, in fact, get rid of it. And I think knowing your why and knowing what you're working toward is really motivating to be able to cut some of that stuff out. Like we loved cable TV before. And I know now cutting the cord is not um, news to anybody, but it, it's just a really easy example to talk about. Once we realized what cable was costing and how much that added up to, and that if we cut that out, we could get to retirement, you know, like a couple months faster. That was an easy no brainer to cut. And so I think when you know why you're doing it and you're not just cutting it to save money, um, it, it becomes a lot easier to make some of those choices. What's your approach to investing? Are you pretty much middle of the road investors not taking on too much risk indexer indexers? Uh, we, I think if you ask Mark, you would probably get a slightly different answer. He is definitely much more comfortable with risk than I am. And so his 401k is pretty much a hundred percent stock. Um, my 401k is, is a lot heavier in bonds because I just tend to be more risk averse, but yeah, as a couple, we're about 70, 30 stocks to bond funds. And we just buy index funds, um, mostly through Vanguard. And, you know, like, we're not trying to pick stocks. We also are not interested in having our gains eroded by high fees. So we're very driven by low fees and just buying a tiny slice of the whole market. No Bitcoin? No Bitcoin. <laughs> Although someone told me who's uh, someone I know who's very, very into Bitcoin. I think her husband like actually works for some sort of technology that supports blockchains and um, cryptocurrency. So she's in it. Um, and so they're highly, uh, I guess, invested in it. But she said, you know, you can still get in the game by buying a 
cryptocurrency mutual fund or, you know, some sort of a basket of cryptocurrencies that are just like giving you uh, an, some exposure. You know, you're not paying fourteen, eleven thousand dollars for Bitcoin, but you're getting some a bit of Bitcoin in the in the fund. And I thought, hmm, that's something to look into. You know, maybe not. Maybe I'll look into that uh, because there again, it's still risky. It, it's still riskier than most other kinds of investments. But I think every por- portfolio should have a little bit of a alternative investing. 10% and maybe the cryptocurrency is like 1% to 2% of that. Yeah, I think that is certainly not something that we've explored at length. I think make sure that whatever you're doing in your alternative investing is is money you can afford to lose. So I think I wouldn't recommend that people go down that road or I know some folks like doing the peer-to-peer lending or some of the things that can give higher returns but are a little riskier. I would say that stuff is good to explore once you have a cushion built up. You know, once you have a good emergency mm-hmm. fund, once you have enough in investments that if you lost that whole alternative investment, you'd still be okay. And then you can just enjoy it if it gives you some gains and if it doesn't, it's not going to sink your whole financial plan. Yeah, you're gambling essentially. So yeah, it should be kind of the fun money on the side. The fun money, yeah. <laughs> you have no debt, you have savings, you have retirement plans, you have maybe a, even if you have children, pro- maybe some savings for their college funds. Like that all takes precedence before <laughs> cryptocurrency yeah. and the like. All right, Tani, let's do some so money fill in the blanks and then I'll let you back to your fun life of doing nothing. By the way, like what is your typical day like now? I mean, you've just gotten back from Taiwan, so that's not typical, but mm-hmm. what what is your average day like at home? The really surprising thing has been how much earlier we get up than we ever have before. Uh, we are both night owls and and have always enjoyed sleeping in when we could. So it's funny that we find ourselves waking up actually pretty early, like pre-dawn most of the time. Um, but you know, I'm still spending a good amount of time writing the blog. I do a lot of writing, which probably looks like work to others, but it's work that I really want to do. And writing is one of the things that I love most of all. So I'm happy to do it. It feels like a privilege. Um, doing some work with my co- podcast co-host Kara on our podcast many days of the week. But then otherwise, so far, it's been, you know, big chunks of time to read, time to get outside and either hike or ski. And, you know, like this morning, I got up and worked on a puzzle for an hour while I had my coffee. <laughs> it felt uh, really luxurious to get to do that. I love that. And you're socializing. I just read, I saw a TED talk that said the number one, the number one attribute to a long life, number one is your social life, like connecting with other people. I completely believe that. And I I have written about that several times because I think that that is a big factor that people often leave out of their early retirement planning or traditional retirement planning for that matter. But a lot of folks will say like, oh yeah, great. I'll see my friends a lot more when we retire early, except wait a minute, like your friends are probably still at work. (laughs) (laughs) You might need to make some new friends. So I think making some new friends who have a similar schedule to you is super important. I also think for us moving to Tahoe here, people are much less likely to have traditional careers. And so there are more people free during the day. We were always the working stiffs who had to say no to going skiing on weekdays before, which now we can change. But that for us, like being in a community where traditional hours are are the 
are abnormal has been a positive for social stuff. But yeah, I, I do think whatever your own circumstances are, it's important to think that through and not just get to early retirement and then all of a sudden feel socially isolated. That's going to take a whole uh, toll on your mental health and your physical health. Great point. All right, Tanya, now some so many fill in the blanks. You're already rich by many definitions, but if you did win the lottery tomorrow, you know, Powerball lottery, the first thing I would do is? I would make it rain to the donor advised fund. (laughs) We would love to be able to give more charitably. And it was really important to us before we quit to put a big chunk of money there since especially with the new tax bill charitable donations really for us won't won't be a write-off in the future. So we put as much as we possibly could into the DAF. Um, but I would love to beef that thing up and be able to give really generously every year for the rest of our lives. That would be amazing. And I'll fast forward to this fill in the blank since it's related. When I donate, I like to give to blank because... Oh my gosh. I, I think that my It's Deductible has like 50 different charities listed that we we like to give to. We give to a ton of causes. A lot are related to climate change. A lot are related to land conservation in our area and around the world. Um, just kind of general environmental protection is a big one. We donate to causes that are focused on hunger. I think it's shocking that we're the richest country in the world and we still can't feed our people and that food insecurity rates are so high. Um, but yeah, we kind of otherwise give all over the map. You know, we'll sometimes give to disease research causes um, for things that we or members of our family have. And, you know, if somebody's doing fundraising for a good cause, we always like to be able to help out. When I splurge, since you're not an innate saver, I want to ask you, (laughs) when I splurge, I like to spend my money on? Airline tickets. (laughs) First class we we have had the good fortune to have a lot of upgrades because I've flown so much for work. So we've gotten some nice fringe perks from that. But I certainly have never paid for first class tickets. I think if our portfolios do exceptionally well, maybe in our 60s, we'll buy a first class ticket every once in a while. But um, it's nice if you can do it for free. Oh, yeah. Free is always free always feels tastes is better than oh, anything yeah. that you pay for. <gasps> When when I do spend on something that makes my life easier or better, I spend on? Right now, we're still paying for a snowplow contract. <laughs> we live in this How much year. snow do you have out there? Uh, we right now have not had the best winter, but we just this morning got about a foot. Where, where we live, we tend not to get snow in inches. We get it in feet. So um, it is definitely worth it to us to pay $500 a year to have somebody else come clear our driveway and not put ourselves through that. But, um, you know, there are different DIY tasks around the house that we could do. We we tend to call a plumber instead of doing plumbing ourselves, even though we know how to do some of it. Um, but I do think as we're now in early retirement, we'll probably be, be trying to take on more of that stuff ourselves just to see what we can do. And then if any of it isn't especially fun or we aren't that good at it, we'll keep hiring that stuff out. All right. One thing I wish I had learned about money growing up is that I wasn't bad at it, (laughs) that I just hadn't found the right systems yet. And again, why do women particularly assume that they're bad with money? I hear this more from women. It's a story that we somehow have in our heads. I don't get it. I mean, I get it because I guess that's, that's what we've been taught. But how did you come to that conclusion? I mean, we talked about it earlier, like the the story with my 
mom and dad and that money dynamic and the way that they both spoke about it. But I do think that the narrative out there of ladies be shopping is super powerful. And this idea that actually becoming wealthy means you get to go shop more, that that's the thing we're supposed to aspire to, I think really plays into that idea that a lot of us carry around. And so recognizing that that is just a story, that's not the truth. And also that there are many, many different ways you can be good at money. And it could be that you get really good at earning it. It could be that you're better at saving it and you're naturally frugal. It could be that you're you're like me and you're neither of those things, but you find a way to put systems into place to help you succeed and you sort of optimize it that way. Um, but yeah, we've, we've got to kill that narrative because it's no good. It's not helping us. And last but not least, I'm Tanya Hester. I'm so money because... I'm going to go back to those systems because I found the systems that that helped me succeed. And in my case, it's hiding money from myself. But for anybody else, it could be a different system. But um, yeah, finding that for me has definitely made me so money. Hide the money and be so money. Tanya Hester, <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, everybody, to go to somoneypodcast.com where you can learn more about how to find Tanya and uh, follow her. But we want to wish you and your husband a fruitful, fun, prosperous retirement. Keep us posted. I know you will on the blog, but uh, wishing you all the best with this new stage in life. Thanks so much. This was a blast. Tanya's blog is OurNextLife.com and they're on Twitter at Our underscore Next Life. If you want to download this interview, read the transcript, head over to SoMoneyPodcast.com and while you're there, you can sign up for our newsletter so you never miss an episode and you can leave me a question. Go to SoMoneyPodcast.com, click on Ask Farnoosh and there you can drop me a note and also let me know that you may want to host the Friday episodes with me. It'd be a lot of fun. I'd love to connect with you. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. And I hope your day is so money.